Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Thursday, the 14th of September. I hope you're having a great day. Looking forward to Friday tomorrow and the weekend. But before that, we have another radio show, another great learning opportunity for you. And we appreciate you being here today. First up, we're going to speak from Germany with Andre Dieselkamp. He has an, a company called Insurancy, which is in the insurance space, obviously. Tech startup, fintech in Europe. So a lot of different angles to learn about. We will learn about all of them. After that, Jerry Crichton will be with us to talk about his new book, Quest for Durability. Boy, we all want that for our companies. And then the least durable thing I can think of, <laughs> this is, that was a horrible transition. Sandy Rosenthal will, will be with us to talk about the levees in New Orleans. They are still not right. And of course there is a government cover-up. So boy, does that shock and surprise us that the government is not necessarily being forthright with us there. Yeah, I think about it a lot. And this is one of the things you longtime listeners, thank you so much, know about me is that I see everywhere a conspiracy, <laughs> not the moon. No, not, no, we didn't. Anyway, a conspiracy about small business government is trying to attack small business. It's obviously happening. And the best example that I've seen recently was the new Airbnb restrictions up in New York City, a complete crackdown more or less. And, you know, I feel both ways on this. The hotels deserve some protection, eh, not much, but they should have to compete for my business. On the other hand, if I'm running an Airbnb out of my house, there are regulations I should have to meet and I should have to pay hotel tax. I don't see why I should get excluded from that. And so, you know, you have to go both ways. But anyway, the city has clamped down. There used to be 36,000 short-term rentals in New York City. That, of course, makes finding housing there. That's 36,000 units that are not in the housing pool, which causes the rent for people who live there full-time to go up dramatically. Anyway, all of these arguments should be had in public, but here's the real kicker. They have said, yes, there will be a process that will, you know, you can still continue to rent. It's going to be very onerous. There's going to be really strict rules, some of which are crazy, like the people who rent aren't allowed to lock their doors. 4,000, actually 3,800 people have applied for the new Airbnb license. Only 300 have been approved. That right there tells us the main thing. 10%, less than 10% have been approved. That's ridiculous. If you follow the rules, you should be approved. Sell, 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 sell. 
I think it's a war against us. We'll be right back. We are back and again. Thank you so very much for being with us. You know, insurance is one of the biggest parts of being an entrepreneur. So many of us in America get our insurance through our employer. And if you are the employer, then you have to figure out insurance. It is always a problem. And there's some great ways to solve the problem, maybe joining a chamber of commerce that offers it or something like that. But I'm more excited to hear today from my guest who is going to help us. Please welcome Andre Disselkamp. He is calling in from Germany. I hope I pronounced his name. Andre, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations on your business insurancy. Is this for worldwide entrepreneurs, American entrepreneurs, just German entrepreneurs? Who is your target audience? Uh, our target audience is basically uh, companies and startups in Germany. Uh, we do care, also take care of some companies in Europe, um, but not um, more than that. Okay. And what is the insurance market like in Germany? Who Who's supposed to pay the bills? Is it individual or do uh, you, companies pay? Uh, there are two, two parts, basically. There's like social security, which is like health insurance and stuff, which is paying like half the employer and half the employee. But all private insurances and all business insurances, like the people have to take care of themselves. Okay. So you pay your own health insurance. Exactly. Like if you're like self-employed, you pay 100% on your own. There's no, nothing you get on top from the government basically in Germany. Okay. And who negotiate? Is there a group negotiation? If I go insure an entire company, can I get a discount or a rebate or is it not like that? Um, you can get group contracts, so to say, where you get um, like a little bit better conditions, but most likely there won't be like a 30% discount if you do something like that. Um, but you can compare the different insurance company offers um, and then you can definitely have like way cheaper and better options compared like to the average pricing. Andre, does the German insurance industry work? Is it actually fair and productive to the citizens in the United States. It's not working. What about in Germany? Like I would say like people are really insured very good that everyone is insured. Everyone needs to have private health insurance and without, um, you are not allowed to be in Germany actually. So everyone is really covered and they have a good coverage. Um, whatever disease you have, even like cancer and stuff, um, you get the treatment, you get a little bit better treatment if you have private health insurance which is um, not available for every citizen, only for those who are like self-employed or earning above X amount of money. Um, but I would say in general, like the system works. Um, it's also getting more expensive um, over time. Like average payment is like, I guess, like 300 to 400 euros a month, what you pay like for health insurance. But also for people who don't make that much money, it's like percentage based. So most people pay way less for health insurance. All right. And so what problem did you see that you were trying to solve? Um, so the problem we try to solve is not based in the private health insurance sector. It's more based in the um, 
uh, pension sector. Like people in Germany can't expect a high pension when they retire. Um, when they work, they pay a percentage of their money into like pension systems uh, and get when they work like for 40 years, only like 40, 30 to 40 percent of what they earn um, as a pension later, which is like nothing. And this is why there's um, a system um, called corporate pension where um, empl employers have the option to like offer benefit to their um, employees to um, close that gap of pension later. And this is basically what we manage and what we um, do all day for the companies. Okay. Well, that's definitely a benefit a lot of people are going to want. I would like the, the little bit extra because uh, it's our health and people really, this is nothing can be more important. So what is the sales pitch that you go to a business with? Um, basically it's like that we take care, uh, about everything. It's like, we are insurance. We, um, manage your whole, um, corporate pension and also business insurance part. We make everything digital and, um, also bring way more service than like the average, um, company out there because we know there's a lot of effort, especially like when, um, employees moving and coming. And, um, this is basically what, um, the employers, um, um, what the employees like really like about our service. All right. And how easy is it for an employee to make a claim and do they get rejected ever? Um, you really mean in regards of like health insurance now? Yes. Yes. Um, because like for pension, there's no claim, like you get accepted always, but, um, for private health insurance, for example, um, if you are not healthy, you can't get it. Like there's a pre-health check for them. And this is, uh, something when they can say no, but if you already have the insurance, um, they are most likely pay for everything. Um, there are really rare situations. If you choose like a good provider that they won't pay it. Okay. And when you were building the business, well, tell us the story. So how did you get started? What did you do first? Tell us the, the birth of the story. Sure. Um, so I started basically in the insurance industry, like six years ago, um, worked for a big insurance company and got my first learnings and experiences. And later on, I, um, changed to like a bigger company, which were taking care, like also on like corporate pension stuff but all in a very traditional way. And then I uh, basically found my business partner um, on that same company. And we thought about like, what can we do better? What can we improve? And that's why uh, we started uh, like how we started like our business. And we're trying to find like our new first clients, did a lot of like online marketing work and also try to like improve our service with pitches. And this is like how now we um, can say like we're like a stable company, which like um, really good clients and um, continue growing um, with like what we do. And uh, yeah, we are really lucky that um, all worked out. Well, it's not luck. I think there's a lot of uh, hard work there too. It sounds like uh, what percent of German startups fail? Is it a, you know, it's a huge number in America, like 90%. Is that true in yeah. Germany and in Europe as well? Yeah, actually, it's the same number. One out of 10 um, startups will actually actually succeed. And the others, uh, 
usually are not. Um, this is also like what uh, the investors think about when they invest. They think like one out of 10 will become really successful and the rest won't. Right. How were you able to get the funds to start? Did it, uh, did you have to get investment or did you do it yourself? Uh, we were lucky that we could start our business part-time. Um, so we had like still a um, stable income and we don't have any investors yet. Uh, and we are also, if it continues to go like as good as it is, um, that we probably won't need them anyways. Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, how were you able to do that? How, were you, did you write the website yourself or did your partner build it? Normally that's a huge expense. What happened there? Uh, yeah, we actually spend a lot of money for the website. That's true also for like online marketing stuff and so on. Um, so for the beginning, we uh, started like part time. So we still had like a real job where we made some, some money with. And uh, luckily, we also started with a big client from the beginning on, uh, which we already knew. And he knew that we do like great work. And this gave us like a stable foundation of money, what we can work on. And then uh, we just couldn't invest like too much in the beginning but the more clients we got the more investments we could make and uh yeah that's uh how we started basically so that first client i mean you didn't steal them from somebody else it doesn't sound like right um no not really it's more like um there's usually one person in a company um responsible for that topic like corporate pension and stuff and this uh person um changed jobs but she still knew us uh and this is how like we we got into that new company you know in the united states we are very egotistical and believe that our country is better and one of the things that society teaches us is that it's easier to start a business in America than almost anywhere else in the world. You can start a business in the United States and get a bank account probably in 24 hours. What about in Germany? How long does it take to do the legal stuff when you start a business <laughs> at the very beginning? Yeah. I don't know if you heard about German uh, bureaucracy. Uh, it's I like have, of course, kind of, yeah, it's it's kind of uh, difficult. Um, I mean, it's not difficult, it works, uh, but it takes way longer than two days. And because all the paperwork you have to do and stuff like that, getting bank accounts, the fastest part of it, I guess. Um, but it takes at least like three to four weeks until we like have the business on board, um, which like, it's more difficult, but cool thing is also that you can get a lot of funding for startups, like with uh, a meaningful purpose and stuff, um, this is what makes it like easier financially wise to start your business. I don't Money know um, what options. What? Um, usually from the government, but also from like um, other uh, companies who want to like help you in the beginning uh, and stuff like that. So again, America is egotistical. I've seen data that says the U.S. economy is 12% based on entrepreneurship and that most of Germany, most of Europe is 4%, 3%. Do those numbers seem true to you? Does it? Do you think that one out of 20 people in Germany works at a startup or is an entrepreneur? Does that seem realistic? 
It totally seems realistic to me um, because um, people um, like to be like safe, have like a safe job, and most of them just don't want to take the risk of like building your own company. Um, this is like um, I would say very common in Germany, and I totally think that these numbers are like true. So you must be very rare. You're the the strange German. What's different about you? Is your underwear too tight? <laughs> yeah, I'm the strange German. Um, I think for me personally, why I got into like being self-employed and stuff is also because like um, my dad is also self-employed. And when I grew up, I always saw like how it works and I didn't have like this big fear about being self-employed. And I think this is a big reason why people become self-employed. Right. Well, that's a huge indicator that you grow up in an entrepreneurial house. Is your father involved in your business today? Do you talk to him about it all the time? Uh, he's not involved in it, but of course we talk about it. Um, he can still give me some great advice and stuff, which is uh, yeah, really helpful. Yeah, I talk to my father uh, every day about business. And so <laughs> uh, he also gives me my best advice. And so where do you hope to go from here? Will you expand throughout Europe? Will this product work in the UK and France? Um, like still the German market is super big and there we want to like put our main focus on at the moment. Um, there's probably also options to do with like, uh, for example, in the Netherlands and stuff. Um, because also our startups are international and they also have like already like employees in those countries and stuff. Um, but at the moment, our focus is definitely Germany. Well, that makes sense. What? 90 million people there? A little less, but yes. Okay. Well, Andre, congratulations. It's a fantastic business and, uh, I love what you're doing. How do we find out more and study the company? Yeah, um, basically on our website, you can find everything about us, uh, but sadly, it's mostly in German written. Um, so it's insurancy.de. And otherwise, you can find us on uh, LinkedIn for sure. Um, if you have um, some questions, I'm happy to answer. Fantastic. Andre, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, I hope you continue to grow. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure, and we will be right back. We are back. And again, thank you so much for being with us. Very excited to introduce another great guest. Please welcome Jerry Creighton Sr. He had a very interesting corporate career and left to run an incubator at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Very successful incubator with 90 or so companies there uh, getting accelerated and learning how to commercialize their products. He has just released a book called the quest for durability, the business puzzle method. Jerry, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. Thank you. So tell us about the book. What is the business puzzle method? Well, the business puzzle method is sort of a culmination of a, a lot of my career. 
Uh, I spent uh, most of my career answering the question like, why do some businesses succeed and some do not? Uh, and and I've, I've kind of narrowed it down to some policies, practices, uh, and ways to run a startup and what I also call an expansion company. Uh, uh, and and I've, I've nailed it, uh, I think, uh, and I've, I've built, a, uh, I've built a, uh, a whole formula uh, that we need to follow uh, to make, uh, make your business uh, successful. All right. What are the variables that go in there? Well, the variables are based on something which I call perpetual planning. Uh, and and uh, perpetual planning also includes uh, the ideas of what I call continual prospecting. In other words, there, you, you can't build a business that just works on, on one um, and one theme and one business model in order for uh, businesses to succeed and for people to invest in them. Because I, I, a lot of my background is as an investor and an M and A person, you got to continually be planning and keep yourself current and up to date. The second uh, platform is what I call continuous improvement of core capabilities, um, and that's the uh, capability of of producing valuable margins, margins that are uh, definitely uh, worthwhile for any investor to look at. Uh, I also um, want these core capabilities to uh, use the technologies and use the knowledge and the resources of people uh, that uh, that can keep you what I call durability, uh, which is to me beyond just being relevant. Uh, <laughs> relevant, uh, it actually means resilience and durable over time. And the third platform, basic, is really following an operational policy. Uh, to prioritize uh, adherence to what I call customer needs and customer preferences. So if, if you follow those three basic uh, formula uh, to my uh, book concept, uh, you should be able to build a business that not only grows, puts you on a growth trajectory, but also will be sustainable and durable in the future. Can you give us an example of a business that performed well on all three of these variables and walk us through it? Sure. Uh, I, I think I would go with Apple. It's a good example. Okay. Now, is that uh, a company that came out of your incubator, the accelerator there in New Jersey? I've never heard no. of them. What are the, what space <laughs> is this company in? Yeah. The Apple, uh, Apple is, is not one of mine per se, but <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I wish it was. But I they wish have, too. <laughs> their whole idea for perpetual planning and, and um, continuous improvement. See, one of the, the keys that I do teach in my book is that you need to have um, a, a bit part of your business always in a startup mode. Uh, startup is not just something that is uh, one time and it goes away. Uh, and so Apple's a good example of that. They always have some portion of their business in a startup mode. So to me, startup is a thing that you learn and you have to continue it in order to be viable in the future. Uh, you don't want to end up like, uh, like, a, like a Kodak because they, they, <laughs> they forgot how to be uh, viable in the future. It's so, you know, Elon Musk uh, said it best, I think. He said, 
if you're trying to create a company, it's like baking a cake. You have to have all the right ingredients in the right proportion. Uh, and that, I think that's exactly right. And, and my, uh, my three uh, uh, pyramid ideas of perpetual land continuous improvement, et cetera, are the, are the ingredients, and uh, you keep them in the right proportion, and your business will grow. That's what you want forever. How are you on risk and startup, startup capital? Uh, how does some of those basics fit into this formula? Well, um, I'm from the uh, school of thought that uh, you don't build a business uh, focused on the financials. You build a business that attracts the financial capabilities. Uh, it's it, uh, a, good, a good, solid uh, business model will attract investors. It will attract people. Uh, and the, the business model itself is, in fact, the thing that starts the uh, conversations for, for money. Uh, from where, whatever source, it could be uh, banks uh, for lines of credit, it could be investors, uh, but it's, it's basically uh, 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 the result of what I call executable plans. And I know you're a big update the business plan guy, is that correct? Yeah, the business plan is never done. No, I, you, I, I know it's done. I got it on the shelf right there. I got a stack of them on the shelf. Yeah, and that's a problem. And in my corporate world, I saw business plans that were on the shelf in big white binders and whatever. But the business plan, per se, has got to be a living document. Um, and it also has to uh, bring in the facts of the perpetual planning, continuous improvement, you know, and the customer needs and preferences that are evolving over time. Uh, so it's a planning thing that's important, not necessarily the plan itself. Okay. And how, say for a new business, how much time should I devote on that? How, how do I know if I'm doing that right? Well, that's a great question. The uh, successful business has to, has to have ability to merge in the day-to-day -day activities where most, most companies get lost in the early years uh, working on the day-to-day uh, -day, uh, problems of billing collections and, and uh, but what what you really need uh, is an ability uh, for to merge those in with the planning activities at the same time. You know, one of the things that I learned in my M&A days was that I was looking for where is the 2.0? Uh, you know, don't just tell me something that's a one deal because if the market changes fast or you don't get the a performance level you anticipate, you need to have a contingency plans in order to go to reduce the risk perception in, in your business. Uh, so it's absolutely important that you merge planning activities with your day-to-day -day activities, and that's how you get the, that's how you get the longevity uh, in, in the life cycle. All right, and... What are the things that need updating on a yearly basis? The financials, the, I don't know, the marketing plan. What do you think gets updated that frequently? Operations? All of the above. Uh, that's the, uh, the marketing plan clearly has to be the most flexible because that's the marketplace is changing constantly. Uh, so that's probably the number one thing 
but you got to get away from the quarterly reporting uh, world. And and uh, I would I would always update my strategies and I call the actionable tactics, how you're dealing with the marketplace and the customers. Um, so I'm constantly going to be uh, using uh, as many metrics as I can to understand whether I am on target. But I, you would also have to be developing your different product lines uh, you are, and taking a look at the changes uh, in, in customer preferences. And that's key because the customer is the only one who's, who's going to uh, validate your business. And when you're talking to the customers, what mm-hmm. sort of, uh, how do you validate that? Is a sale validation enough? Or is that the only possible, only acceptable validation? So the, val- the validation has got to be, well, first of all, it will show up in your financial plans. Obviously, if your revenue is growing, that's one validation that you're doing something right. Uh, I, I would also, to keep uh, on top of that, uh, I would do uh, research. I, I would uh, get in, uh, input from uh, outsourced uh, thing. I have to. I have to look at the competition. So that's part of of the perpetual planning process, uh, and that's that's how I would validate because that's really what you need. Validated uh, validated strategies are what I always looked at um, from the standpoint. Am I really interested in investing in a company? Uh, can you validate what you're doing? You know because. Startup businesses are based on assumptions, and, and assumptions have to be validated in order to uh, make it make it a, a business model that's going to succeed. I know that you did a lot of M and A work all over the world. Can you talk about yeah. the differences between, say, Europe or Asia or the U.S. for mergers and acquisitions? Yeah, the the. Uh, Purpose of what I was doing was out setting up uh, uh, overseas uh, channels of various kinds. Either we bought them or we set them up as distributors. But each company uh, that I worked with uh, had a different purpose, um, depending on what country I was in. The the uh, the key differences probably was whether the owners or founders were looking for a, a out <laughs> or whether they're looking for an ongoing business relationship. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, that is different in any country. That was exactly what I ran into when I, I found these things. The uh, uh, purpose of, uh, of a company wanting to operate in Russia, say, versus uh, uh, Poland, uh, we're very similar. They're, the concept has to do with the, the goals of the uh, founding uh, leadership team. How do you know if your idea is a good one? Say you're going back to the very beginning, uh, how do you test if you don't even have a platform yet or if you don't even have the prototype yet? How do you test at the earliest stages? Well, the testing the stages has got to be you have to get out of your office and into the marketplace and try it out. You, you know, I suggest that uh, people do demos. Uh, they build uh, prototypes. 
Um, they go through clinical trials, clinical researches of various kinds. Uh, but the verification of the business model is the number one thing that will get the business moving. Uh, so it's it's a lot of different uh, presentations. I um, first of all, you know, you got to have a you have to have a good investor pitch. Uh, you have to have a uh, a lot of of, uh, of uh, demo time and 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 looking at the marketplace per se. Or to resource uh, the resources from research activities, so it, it can be. Um, uh, you know, the question is, are you solving a problem? Uh, and it is the problem uh, something you need. And from an investor's point of view, it, a problem is really an opportunity. So you need to turn around the problem and see if it best the opportunity. You can't find investors that want to talk to you. You probably don't have anything that that's going to survive in the future. Do you think someone should spend time looking for investors or building the business? I think you build a business before you look for investors. Uh, you build the business so you have something to talk about, and because uh, you're going to be wasting a lot of time talking to people that are going to be asking you hard questions. Like, you know, if you're a good company, why are you the company that can solve this problem? Uh, what resources do you have that the competition doesn't have? Uh, why is it now the good timing to make these things work? And these are the, some of the key questions that an investor would ask. So you need, you need to get the plans done so you can answer those kind of questions. Uh, you don't want to go out looking for money. I mean, I've had... Uh, I've had people come into my office and they say, Jerry, uh, I need money and I need it now. And I said, okay, let me see your current business plan. And they'd say, and uh, they'd say, well, I don't have time for all that. I, t I need the money now. Well, of course, <laughs> you know, usually uh, that doesn't work that way unless, unless you're working with uh, your uh, uh, Uncle Harry or somebody, friends and family who wouldn't ask those questions. Uh, but, yeah, you got to... Um, you got to get the business solid. You have to get the story solid, and then you can go after the money and, and feel uh, feel comfortable. Your second variable, the one about continual improvement, is that the same as the Japanese continual improvement? Yes. The uh, see my my background. Uh, I'm, I started out in the business world as a Baldwin examiner, uh, Baldridge examiner, and. Uh, that is based on the concept of continuous improvement. Uh, that is absolutely the case. Uh, as an examiner, I used to go out and evaluate companies and see if, in fact, there is such a thing going on as continuous improvement. Or are they still in a status quo world? Uh, and we, we know what happens when you get in a stay, stay in a status quo world. Continuous improvement includes a couple of things. It it's, uh, includes doing things better, i.e. adding technology, uh, managing the cost of goods sold, so, i.e. so your margins are, in fact, viable. The, you know, the world is full of commoditization issues, uh, price pressures, and the various kinds of things that most businesses don't think about, most startup businesses don't think about right away. But that's a, one of the realities of life. You need to also have programs that reduce the risk of, of uh, pressure from competition 
And, and that is basically done, in my mind, through a continuous improvement process. All right. Well, I, I sort of grew up as a business person in Japan, Jerry. And so yeah. I couldn't agree more than, than this. Uh, or that, right. you know, it's amazing how 1% a year becomes huge over 20 years or something, you know? And so, right. uh, I've certainly seen that happen myself. And what else do we have? We only have about a minute left, Jerry. What else do we need to know? Well, I think you need to know that there, there's, a um, in the book, uh, I have in fact laid out what I call the, uh, puzzle pieces, uh, the principles that, a company can follow uh, in order to shore up their business plans, their business model, and their concept. And uh, that's that's what you'll see. I have eleven puzzle piece principles that I've le- uh, uh, I've included in the bo- in the whole book, um, and that's a uh, uh, that's a key. Um, uh, it's it, uh you follow what I call the quest for durability uh, with the business puzzle and produces a, a, a durability by design. And, and, and I call it durability by design because I believe it should be part of their planning, your planning process. Um, you got to grow for durability by design. You have to look at uh, uh, continuity between short-term and long-term uh, programs. Uh, nobody invests in in a band in what I call a band aid uh, concept. Uh, you know, just like some everybody else, you have to have differentiation. Uh, you have to have a unique a niche approach, and you have to have a proven way to deliver it in a marketplace. Great advice! Congratulations on the book. I hope it sells very well for you. How do we find out more? Follow you online. And get in touch. Well, you can you can call call me online uh, a couple of different ways. My website is jerrycrayton.com. so that's one way to go. Uh, or you can contact me on my um, email address, uh, which is is uh, Jerry Jerry Creighton. Oh, <laughs> wait a minute, Jerry at jerrycrayton.com. There you go. And Creighton is spelled the traditional way, just like the university, the school in Omaha, I think. C-R- That's correct. C R E I G H T O N. Jerry, thank you so much. Great stuff. And I'd uh, love to have you back. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. Enjoy. We will be right back to talk about the levees in New Orleans. We'll be right back. We are back, and again, thank you so much for being with us. I'm very excited now to welcome Sandy Rosenthal to the show. She has been fighting the Hurricane Katrina battle still. She is a resident of New Orleans and has been disgusted by the failure of the levy system. She founded a nonprofit called levies.org with 25,000 supporters nationwide and has written a book about it called words whispered in water 
She investigated and exposed the Army Corps of Engineers for their incredible failures in the Katrina situation. She has shown also that they spent millions of dollars covering up their mistakes. And she will point out, and this is really scary, that 62% of us live within a levy system somehow. She has a weekly podcast of her own called Beat the Big Guys, where she talks about how to take on your community and win your battle. Sandy, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you for inviting me. I'm doing great. All right. So describe what you discovered. Why were you, why'd you even start this, this fight? Tell us about the, well, the beginning. Sure. Well, keep in mind, this was no ordinary disaster. This was a catastrophe. I mean, the, the scale, the magnitude is, is st it's still mind-boggling, even though it was 18 years ago. You know, 1,400 people dead within a few hours. Uh, hundreds of thousands of homes destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of families displaced. The damage, the infrastructure. I mean, it was the worst engineering disaster in the history of the U.S. So, after the, this event... Everybody was blaming the storm, the weather. And I kept thinking, this, this doesn't make any sense to me. These levees were supposed to hold back the water. These levees crumbled. And so I started asking questions. And that's the key. You keep asking questions until you get a good answer. And I asked and I asked and I formed a little group with my 15-year-old son to start. Barely 15 years old. Our kids know everything these days. He did the website. Uh, I did the mission statement. And we did a kickoff rally. And almost overnight, we had 200 supporters. We kept building and building and building. And then we got to work and we started exposing the Army Corps' very, very bad behavior, which I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about today. Well, let's do that right now. What did they do so egregious? Well, the, the first thing that they did is they made a mistake. They were, they were looking for ways to save money, and they would steel is very expensive, and they figured out a way to shortchange the steel sheet pilings. Uh, instead of driving them down 50 feet, they drove them in about 16. So uh, the Hurricane Katrina surge arrived. It, wasn't even, it was a moderate surge in the city of New Orleans, and it was enough to make these levees crumble all over the city. So the first thing they did was they, they, they covered up their error. They, they hid their mistake. And to make it worse, not only did they not admit they made a mistake, they tried to cover it up, which, I, you know, that's worse you know, than, than the mistake itself, in my mind. And they spent millions trying to fool the American public. And believe it or not, they spent millions going after me and my little grassroots group that I founded with my son. What millions. did they do to you? They, Believe it or not, they, they with all the money they spent time going after me. Well, it's because you know we had found them out. What they did to me and my son is this is keep in mind this was 2005. That was the great era of social media. It was a new thing, and the folks at, at the Army Corps of Engineers were sitting at their desks, viciously attacking me, my group, and anyone that supported my group online on all of the social media, okay? Going after us, except here's the clinch, here's the, here's the punchline. We caught them using IP addresses. For your listeners who aren't familiar with it, what an IP address is, it's kind of like caller ID. 
In case someone calls you on the phone, you know who it is by their caller ID. We discovered the Army Corps of Engineers was going after us using IP addresses. It was an incredibly embarrassing moment for the Army Corps, and the whole city of New Orleans remembers this. This happened a few years after the levees, after the levees broke. So bit by bit, time by time, uh, which I go into a lot more detail in my book, eventually the truth came out. But it took, it took years before this truth to finally come out and for the media in this country to start pinning blame where it belongs, which is on the federal government. How is the situation now? If there was another storm this September, what would happen? Okay. Well, there was another storm like Katrina. It was called Ida. And it arrived two years ago on the exact same day that Hurricane Katrina arrived, August 29th. The levees did fine because the second time around, the Army Corps of Engineers built the right system. They got it right this time. But I got to tell you, Jim, that if your aunt had died in her attic, you you would not be satisfied with just getting a, a new correct system. You'd, you'd want the old system to be the right system. So the important thing, what I'm trying to say, Jim, it was important for the survivors of the city that the American public understand really why the city went underwater, why there was so much death, why there was so much destruction. You know, a lot of the people had to leave or displaced, had to go to Texas or California or Maine and could never go home because the money was gone. Right. How hard is it to set up a nonprofit like this, Sandy? Walk through some That's of the process. That's the good news. The good news is you don't have to have everything on day one. So on day one, what did I have? I wasn't even in the city of New Orleans. I was in Lafayette, uh, two and a half hours away. No one could live in the city of New Orleans because everything was flooded. So um, my son started a website, and I was the, the president, and we started using email. And the email's free. It doesn't cost a dime. And then we, we started um, um, getting the message out and having people sign petitions. All of this is free, okay? And you know what happens, though? The moment you stand up and speak out, the experts will come join you, and they'll help you. So don't worry that you can't hire an engineer or an attorney or a media person. What will happen is these experts will find you. They'll see you speaking up. And they will say, here, I'll give you my uh, expertise for free. You don't, have, you don't have to give me a dime. I'll do it for free. And, but the important thing is you ask your questions. Ask your questions. I'm going to share a secret with everybody. This is a, an important secret. To get the attention of the media, all you have to do is ask a reasonable question, make a valid point, and back it up with the data. The media will will see you and will come find you and will give you the attention you need because a nonprofit, the best thing they can get is is uh, media coverage because that's free. Uh, further, that's furthering the reach of your message at no cost to you. So they need to keep that in mind. The time that I, I, I learned about that was when my organization discovered that the Army Corps of Engineers was so worried about its reputation that they spent $5 million on a PR company. This is the federal government. $5 million on a PR company to improve their image. Well, we found out about it. We started screaming about it. Uh, we... we uh, posted pages of their PR company's um, memos up on our website. 
And, and the moment we did this, uh, I got a phone call from CBS National News. Make a valid point. No, excuse me. Ask a reasonable question. Make a valid point. Back it up with the data. So I said, the Army Corps of Engineers is supposed to be protecting us. Uh, why are they spending money on their public image? They should be spending money on doing, building the levees right. So anyway, sim- simple, simple little formula. It works. Very interesting. Great point and great learning exercise for us. And your organization, does it require money? I mean, any money that it would be, uh, you know, most organizations are asking for money. Are you asking for money, Sandy? It is free to be a member of levies.org, and you can unsubscribe at any time. And as I mentioned earlier, all of our experts um, volunteer their advice and uh, expertise pro bono. So we do take donations. We are a nonprofit because sometimes we need to pay for things. Uh, um, Like, for example, I held a press conference yesterday, and we, we needed to get a tent because it's so hot here in New Orleans. In fact, today was our hottest day on record uh, ever in history. So uh, we needed a tent, and we get the money for things like that by accepting donations. And it, it, So we are a nonprofit, and uh, we, we accept donations, but not from, you know, not, certainly not from the Army Corps of Engineers. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so that, that's how it works. But it, you don't need a lot of money to run a nonprofit. Uh, the mailing lists are free these days. MailChimp is a great uh, free tool uh, to do mailings to, to, to uh, all of your supporters. And, and SurveyMonkey, all of these things, if, if your numbers are decently low, it's free. Once you get to be thousands and thousands, yeah, then, then they start charging you money. But that, that's something you worry about later. Right. That's a good problem to have when you get the big numbers, right? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what I would have said. It's a good problem. Yes. And what about the, the legal part of setting up your nonprofit? Was that difficult? I've heard some nonprofits have trouble getting uh, official status. It, we, my organization was not a 501c3. Yes, it is difficult to be a 501c3 because of all of the laborious detail that you need to do to keep that status. We, we kept with just plain nonprofit, and that means that uh, donations are not tax deductible. But you just tell people that. You just say, when someone wants to, give, to make a donation, say thank you. By the way, we're not a 501c3. This isn't tax deductible. Is that a problem? And I've never, in the history of my organization, we're coming up on 18 years old, I've never had someone say, well, if it's not tax deductible, you can't have my money. So, so that is not an issue. Don't let money, you know, stop you. You know, the, the money will take care of itself. And for those, for the, for the tent that I needed today, there's people out there that are willing to give their money. Oh, there are some people who uh, agree with, an, uh, with, a, with a, uh, a mission and a goal but don't want their name involved, <laughs> but they'll give you money. <laughs> that, that's their way of, of uh, being involved without getting their face and name in it. <laughs> that's hysterical that they'll give you the yeah, the yeah. Money, just keep their name their out name. of it yeah right right interesting, interesting. Yeah, it's a good problem <laughs> right so what is your ongoing mission now what is your continuing goal we recently discovered are you sitting down jim yes we recently discovered 
that in this country, engineering students are not routinely exposed to engineering failures in their classroom, in the classroom. They are not. It is. I would have assumed every engineering student hears all about, like the levee failures of New Orleans, or the Tacoma Bridge disaster, or the, or the, uh, the Hindenburg. But no, it is not standard procedure to be exposed to engineering failure and the lessons that can be learned from them, and 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 all of the most common engineering mistakes. It is not routine. It's not standard. So my organization uh, just held a press conference this week at the anniversary of the levy breach event. Uh, we we uh, unveiled a campaign that we are going to change it so that in order for a school to keep its accreditation, it has to teach engineering failures. It has to, and we're going to make that happen. And we've got a plan, and we launched it yesterday, actually, as a matter of fact. Well, that's a good idea. Of course, that makes a lot of sense. Everyone that hears it says that. Everyone, 100%. Yeah. Like that bridge that fell apart uh, 50, 60 years yeah. ago. You've ever, ever That's watched the Tacoma that? Bridge. Yes. That's the, the Tacoma Bridge. And you would think that every student is routinely being exposed to that, that video. Nope. Nope. Only if a particular professor thinks, hey, I think I'll show that video today in class. It's not standard. It's not required. And we are going, to, are going to see to it that it's required. And our goal for that to be done is going to be the 20th anniversary of the levee breach event, which is coming up in two years. Wow. Unbelievable. Well, Sandy, thank you for opening our eyes on this and giving us a little information on how to start a nonprofit and the distinction between the 501c3 and a, a standard mm-hmm. uh Nonprofit is a huge distinction. How do we find more? Follow you online, Sandy. It's really simple. It's my name, SandyRosenthal.net. Sandy, great stuff. Great battle that you're fighting. Thank you for what you're doing for the country, and I hope you win. Thanks so much, Jim. Take care. We are out of time for today, but back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Go make a million dollars. Bye now.